Hello everybody and welcome to episode 2 of Rope 10. If this is your first time listening, haven't missed much, we're only on episode 2. If you actually listened to episode 1, you're back for more. Thank you very much. Um, again, this has just been a dream of mine. I'm having a really, really fun time doing this, whether you guys listen or not. So if you guys are enjoying this, then hell, we got a win-win in our hands here. So let's keep it going. And I'm still on that starter setup, so I'm using the coffee table in the living room. You know, you're going to hear a couple of background noises while I'm figuring out this editing thing. Milo's probably going to be a key contributor there. That's my boy Milo. He's my dog. And he's my number one supporter. But yeah, whether this is your first or your second time out, I think we've got a fun one coming up today. Going to be talking about who I think are the NBA offseason winners and losers. And obviously, because it's so early, I'm going to be talking about the few teams I'm going to keep an eye on. Also going to be talking about whether the NFL running back should be getting paid. And finally, we're going to recap the Formula One race that happened in Hungary today. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, let's get into it, and let's play that track. So I know it's early days into the offseason, but I do actually think there's already been a couple of moves that have happened that have put some people into that winner's category, have some put some people into that loser's category. And again, like I mentioned earlier, we are going to get into some of the teams to watch. I do know it's super early. It's tricky to really say who's a winner, who's a loser. We still got a lot of big people to move around. So there are going to be some teams I'm going to keep an eye on, and I'll get into them. But first off, let's get into the winners. My number one team who I actually think has made a lot of key additions, the Lakers. Hurts me to say it. I don't know why. Can't say I've ever really been a Lakers fan, but slowly coming around to them, I do respect their greatness. Kobe was one of the greatest players to play, and I, I'll give him his greatness there. Let's not get into the GOAT conversation. But yeah, let's not get into the Lakers history. Let's get into the NBA offseason. Why I think they've actually been some pretty good winners is a they've made some really good moves around the roster they've already had. Some of the key additions that they've had, they brought in Gabe Vincent out of Miami, signed him to a three-year, $33 million deal. He had a great playoff run for Miami. If it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have gotten as far as it was. I know Jimmy Butler was the leader on that team, but their role players played a significant part of it, Gabe Vincent being one of them. He was a starting point guard for them, really led the way. A couple of times they relied on him for the score, and he was a spark a couple of times. Great three-point shooter. I think the Lakers just picked up a really good guard there. Another signing they got, Cam Reddish. Got him on a two-year, $4.6 million deal. I've always liked Cam Reddish. He came out of Duke with Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett. They were a, an amazing college trio. He came out, I believe he was drafted second behind Zion before R.J. Barrett. Very, very good wing. Hasn't quite hit the potential or necessarily maybe hasn't gotten his opportunity and scored as many points as Zion and RJ, which has made it look that way. He's still super young. I think he's a great three-point shooter. Good ball handler. Can score when he wants to. Getting there on the defensive side, he's actually pretty darn good. So Cam Reddish is developing into a pretty good player. Maybe if he's learning on this Lakers team, they've got a couple of good veterans. LeBron's on there. Anthony Davis is on there. I mean, you saw Aston Reeves blow up. Austin Reeves could teach him a couple of things. It's going to be a pretty good year to watch. I like Cam Reddish. Another one of the young players that I really like that they signed, Jackson Hayes. They got him also on a two-year $4.6 million deal. I wouldn't say he was buried behind the bench there, but didn't really get a crazy amount of opportunities in New Orleans. They're not necessarily a, a strong team just yet. They're, they're getting there, 
but they aren't really contending for many championships, let's be honest. So getting him in L.A. I think is going to be really good. He can learn from Anthony Davis. I know Anthony Davis gets injured, so it could give Jackson Hayes a couple of opportunities. They tried with Mo Bamba last year. I like him. He's another big man out of Texas, just like Jackson Hayes. Didn't really work out. Bamba's a little skinnier. Either way, we're not getting into Bamba. Jackson Hayes, I think, is going to be a really, really good signing, and they got him for cheap. Also able to bring back D'Angelo Russell. They were able to trade for him halfway through the season, and they inked him to a longer time. He's on a two-year, $36 million extension there, which I think is going to be really, really good. Again, him and Gabe Vincent are a really, really good one-two punch. I don't know of many teams out there in the league that have a better one-two punch. I'm probably missing a lot of things. Again, this is just off the top of my head, but that's where I think it is. Austin Reeves, also a key, key signing. Got him on a four-year, $56 million extension. White Mamba, I mean, energy fan favorite. I think he was a really, really good move to bring him back. Going to keep the fans happy. Going to keep them winning. Played well with what the Lakers have going. Key contributor in the playoffs. Good decision to bring him back, no matter how much money it costed. Finally, Rui Hachimura on a three-year, $51 million deal. He's not really the biggest name. Then again, those people aren't the biggest basketball fans, might not know some of the names I've also mentioned before. But Rui Hachimura had a really, really good playoffs. I don't want to say it got over overblown, but he did have that one good defensive game there against the Lakers where they were able to put him up against Jokic. It was towards the end of the game, but either way, he did play a really, really good game. I'm not going to give him any slack for it. He did play good for the position he had. Um, so I do like the fact that they brought back Rui Hachimura. Is 51 mil for three years too much money? You know, normally I would say yes, but the NBA has got stupid money, so that's actually not a bad deal. People they've lost, I mean, I mentioned they lost Mo Bamba. I think they've replaced him with Jackson Hayes, who's probably going to fit better with this Lakers rotation. Lost Malik Beasley, lost Dennis Schroeder, and lost Lonnie Walker the fourth. So, again, some names here there. They put up some performances from time to time, but I do think Gabe Vincent, Cam Reddish, and Jackson Hayes as the newcomers are going to do a lot better than what they've lost. So that's why I think Lakers so far have been the number one winner of the offseason. Other winners, as much as it pains me to say this, the Boston Celtics. I don't even know if I want to get into this. I can't say I'm the biggest Boston Celtics fan. They are, without a doubt, my least favorite team. Do I even want them on my podcast? I don't know. But at the end of the day, I can't be biased. I can't do these kind of things. I'm giving you what I believe, who's done the best, and I can't deny what the Celtics have done bringing in Chris Tapps Porzingis. Yep, they've signed him for a lot. He's a two-year, $60 million deal extension, which is currently a three-year, $90 million deal will that extension. But I do think he's going to be a really, really good piece of this team. He was... Drafted by New York, they blew up. One of my favorite videos ever, the Tingus Pingus. Kristaps Porzingis didn't really hit his stride in New York. Had a couple of good performances. Bounced around a couple of places. But I do think last year in Washington, I mentioned it in the last video where, or just kidding, they mentioned in the last video, I mentioned in the upcoming, writing too many notes. But Kristaps Porzingis was a really, really good player. He scored 24 points a game, I think it was, for them last year which was tied for leading the Wizards. So, it hurts to lose him, yes, for the Wizards, but I'm going to get into them later. Chris Taps Porzingis coming onto the Celtics team, matched up with Jason Tatum, I think is a really, really good 
pairing move. Not really pairing, but it's a good move. Bringing in Chris Porzingis. They did lose Grant Williams. Traded him for two second rounders. Um, I do think that's going to hurt Grant Williams. Key contributor, fan favorite, good role player. But I think Chris Stapps is better. Good upgrade. The big question to see whether the Celtics are going to keep in this or remain in this winner's category is Jalen Brown. What's going to happen with him and his salary? He's super max eligible after last year because he made one of the All-NBA teams. So he could sign a five-year, $295 million deal. Now, the Celtics might have the money for it. And normally I would say pull the trigger right away. You were so close last year, you can do this. What you have to think about, though, Jason Tatum is going to be a free agent coming up soon. He also needs money. I also just mentioned Chris Tapps Porzingis is on a two-year, $60 million deal. Jalen Brown signing for that five-year, two ninety-five. You're gonna have enough money to pay Tatum and put a competitive team around you. Time will tell. So that's gonna be a big question mark. What they do with Jalen Brown, but right now the Celtics bringing in Chris Porzingis and only kind of losing J- Grant Williams. I think it's pretty good. They're in the winners. Other winners, the Phoenix Suns. When I first thought about it, I kind of laughed because I was like, "What are they really gonna build around them?" But I think they've done an alright job after getting Bradley Beal. So yeah, that was the big blockbuster of the offseason. Bradley Beal and a big three-way trade with Chris Paul, who went to Washington. He's no longer with Washington. He went somewhere else, or he's gone to Golden State. But Bradley Beal coming in on a second year of a five-year, $251 million deal to pair up with Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and DeAndre Ayton. I think that's a really, really good addition. I like that they made the move this early. They got him so he can learn, he can practice, he can play with them. That's one of the things that I think hurt them last year in the playoffs. They didn't necessarily have enough time to build that cohesion. Kevin Durant was a new trade, got injured. Chris Paul was injured here and there. They never really built that connection with each other on the court. So getting them this early with enough time to practice, I think is a great, great, smart timing of the move. Then, again, as I was mentioning, I didn't think that they were going to be able to bring in some good role players, but I was wrong, or maybe it's just the players that I like, but the fact that they were able to bring in Bull Bull on a one-year, $2 million deal, I do know he's overhyped in my head, at least. I can't say he's overhyped in the world. Not a lot of people know Bull Bull, but I really, really like Bull Bull. I want him to figure it out. I think he's intriguing. For those that don't know Bull Bull, you probably also don't know who Mbenyama is. He's seven foot two or seven foot three. It's not, I'm talking about Bobo now, not Waminyama. Bobo, I believe, is seven foot two or seven foot three. Lanky as all can be. He's the son of Minute Bull, who was seven foot six, I believe, a great player back in the day for the Washington Bullets, who are now the Washington Wizards. But yeah, Bobo, great player, good ball handling, a bit of a slasher. I shouldn't say that. He's not a bit of a slasher, but he can slash, can bring the ball from end to end. Shocks a couple of people. Um, I want to say he was drafted by Denver. I don't know if he was drafted by Denver or Orlando, but those were the two teams he spent recent time on. It was really exciting when I watched Bobo play again because you don't normally see people his height play the way he plays. So I think that's a pretty good addition. He gets to come in behind Kevin Durant, who's also a taller player, maybe learn a couple of things here and there. Another person on the bench that I think was a good addition, Keita Bates-Diop. A two-year, $5 million deal. If I'm correct, he played for San Antonio last year. 
But I do think he's a, overall a pretty good 3 and D player. So I like the addition there. And then finally bring in Eric Gordon on a two-year $6.5 million deal. Eric Gordon, I think, probably could have got a bit more money based on the veteranship that he brings. If that's a word, veteranship. But yeah, what he brings, he's a good shooter, can still contribute. So I think he could have gotten more but took a bit of a pay discount to try and get that ring in Phoenix. I think it's going to work out. I do think he's coming off the bench, but will be a, a key role off the bench, if not a key role to the rest of the youngsters that they build around the Phoenix Suns. Um, and ultimately, yeah, those are the three teams that so far are the winners based on where they were last year and what they've done to try and help get over that Denver Nuggets Nikola Jokic hurdle. Another team who I think are winners, but not really contenders, are the Indiana Pacers. Indiana Pacers made a trade with the Knicks and a couple of other teams, I think. They got Obi Toppin out of it. I really like Obi Toppin, so Pacers got a really, really good forward out of him. Pretty athletic. Still room to grow. Didn't show super consistency in New York, but I think once he figures it all out, is going to be a pretty good role player, if not starter, on some teams going forward in his career. Other player that I really like coming out of the draft, Jarris Walker from Houston. Bit undersized for the forward position, but can do it all. I'm not going to say he's Draymond Green-esque, but I do believe he can put up some of those triple-doubles because of the good rebounding skills he has, good shot IQ, and the savviness. He knows the pass IQ. He knows where to hit his players. Another player that I liked that the Pacers add was Bruce Brown out of the Nuggets. That was a huge hit on the Nuggets. I'm not going to say it, it's going to kill the Nuggets chance they still have their core four or five locked up for the next like three years so the Nuggets are here to contend for a long time but getting Bruce bound from the Nuggets was a good move by the Pacers I mean East has always historically been one of the lesser of the team so they could sneak their way into the playoffs with that young Tyrese Halliburton um, led Pacers so yeah, those are the teams that I think have been some of the winners. And now we're going to get into some of the teams that I think are the losers. Number one, the Raptors. As much as it hurts me to say it, I'm living in Canada. I love watching the Raptors. They were really, really good for a long time. I loved Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. They broke that up and still had some really good players. But I'll be honest, that's when I started to fall off a little bit on the Raptors. But this offseason, I think they've significantly lost. I thought for the longest time they should have traded Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam before the trade deadline, but they didn't. They could have got a trade for OG Ananobi. I think they could have should have done that too. Also didn't do that. Maybe it's because I'm too quick to go into the rebuild, but those are moves I thought the Raptors should have made while they had the ability to sell them to one of those playoff contending teams, but they didn't. And now Van Vliet walked for free. He went to Houston on a crazy deal. Great for Van Vliet, but crazy for Houston. Uh, and they replaced him with Dennis Schroeder, who left from the Lakers, like I mentioned earlier. I like Schroeder, don't get me wrong, but he's no Fred Van Vliet. That's a significant downgrade, and you didn't get much out of it because you could have traded Van Vliet, and he walked in free agency. Also, because of not trading Siakam, he's now in an expiring deal, similar with Ananobi expiring soon. Their trade value, I think, has gone down. I think trade value is somewhat high in the middle of the season when you can get those contenders that want to pay big. But again, I do think Siakam and Ananobi have gone down. And if the Raptors don't perform that way they performed and they start to lose a couple more games, that always hurts your trade value. 
Yes, you could put up the stats, but if you're not necessarily playing on a great team, your trade value does go down. Another team I think have been losers are the Wizards. Like I mentioned with losing Kristaps Porzingis and Bradley Beal, I mentioned with the Phoenix Suns, I didn't tell you he came from Washington, but he did come from Washington. So they lost Bradley Beal and Kristaps Porzingis, their top two leading scorers last year. Both of them had 24. Kuzma was close, so I'll give them that. But they lost their top two leading scorers, which always hurts. They were able to bring in Jordan Poole, who has shown flashes of amazingness, but also shown flashes of flashes of craziness. Pair him with Kyle Kuzma. I do think they're a bit wild, but can figure it out. I just don't know who on this team is going to teach them because they're the two leaders. Not to say they can't be leaders, but they need that veteran to show them the ropes, get them to calm down, because I do think they're a bit wild. Now, the Wizards did get Koulibaly out of the draft. He's a, I think he's a 19-year-old French guard. He was Victor Wembanyama's teammate over in the EuroLeague for the Metropolitans 92. One of the raw prospects, which is why I kind of put Wizards in that losers category because they had an early pick. It's going to pay out in the long run, but this offseason they could have gotten better value at the draft position. Not to say I would have done it. Again, they're building for the future, but... This podcast segment is about this offseason. Because I'm rating Koulibaly right now, I think he's a bit of a raw prospect. So that's why I have Wizards as well in that losing category. They could surprise a couple of people. They've probably got some salary cap in there. But because they lost their top two leading scorers and replaced it with Jordan Poole, who's still a bit wild in figuring it out, I have Wizards in that losing category. Now, I know it's still way too early in the offseason, so there's a couple of teams that I want to keep an eye on. It's four teams in total, but in a way it's split up 2-2. They're kind of connected. First two teams are Miami and Portland. Big name this offseason, Damian Lillard. He has finally requested that he wants a trade out of the Trailblazers, and Miami is where he wants to go. It's been said a couple of times. Now his agent apparently has been saying to other teams, don't trade for him, you're going to get an unhappy player. Whether that was a smart decision, whether it's all fully true or not, I'm not getting into that. I don't have the sources. Again, I'm sitting on my living room couch using my coffee table. But Damian Little is a big name. He wants to go to Miami. So if Miami can pull off that trade, I think they're winners. If they don't pull off that trade... Right now, they're looking like losers as they lost a couple of key role players. It hurts me to say it. I'm a Miami Heat fan. But Oladipo, who went healthy, good defensive guard, lost him to OKC. Gabe Vincent, as I mentioned earlier, was a key guard in their playoff run, lost him to the Lakers. Max Struess, who, again, was part of the undrafted core, great three-point shooter, a couple of sparks here and there. They lost him to the Cavs. Another player who I liked, Yurtseven. Didn't see him in the playoffs, but I thought he was a really, really good big man for Miami. They lost him to Utah. So if they don't pull off this Dame trade, I don't know what they can bring in to, to bring them back into that winner's category. They might break even at 500, but are they going to be winners? I don't know. Also tied into it, the Trailblazers. They got Scoot Henderson in the draft. Scoot Henderson is a great player. I'm very excited for that. But they did sign Grant. Jeremy Grant to a five-year, $160 million deal. I love Jeremy Grant. I think he's a great player. Do I think he's worth that much money? No. Again, NBA money is stupid. Who's to know in two to three years where that salary cap's going to be, and this might not be that bad. But for now, I think that's a lot of money tied up in a player that's not fully worth it. 
And again, depending on what they get back for this Damian Lillard trade, are they going to be winners? Are they going to be losers? Time will tell. It's interesting to see what's going to happen. As a Heat fan, I'm saying let's do everything we can to make it happen. The other two teams that I think are too early to tell aren't as connected as the two, but are connected in the fact that it's very similar. First one is the Philadelphia 76ers. I think this offseason is going to be a big one because depending on what happens with the Harden situation, you're now running the risk of losing Embiid. So that's why I think it's maybe not for this upcoming season. You'll still have Embiid, but what happens with Harden could dictate what happens with Embiid in the future. And because it's going to happen this offseason, is this going to be a winning or a losing offseason? Finally, Dallas. Similar situation. What's going to happen with Kyrie Irving? They're running the risk of losing Luka Doncic. Now, both Luka Doncic and Joel Embiid are still three years left on the year contract with a player option in that fourth year. So, you still got three more years of them, but how long until they request a trade because it's not really working out? So, those are some of the teams I think are too early to tell. But again, the team right now that I think has been the best this offseason have been the Lakers. A couple of big moves could still go around that that knocked them out of the top spot. But until that happens, the Lakers have the crown and I think they have the best off season so far. And, uh, that's going to lead me into my very first commercial break of this podcast. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have enough money for a commercial just yet, but who knows? Maybe one of those sponsors are going to listen and hear me out. And welcome back. We're going to switch sports up a little bit and go to the NFL on one of the hotter topics on whether the NFL running back should be getting paid the mega million dollars like some of the other position groups and players have been getting. This is one of the hotter topics as some of the NFL star running backs got franchise tagged. Saquon Barkley from the Giants, Josh Jacobs of the Raiders, and the Cowboys' Tony Pollard, which caused a string of tweets from the other star running backs and other players around the league to voice their opinion on their frustration with the lack of money going to the running back room these days. So my easy answer to this question is yes. Based off their talent, I do believe that they deserve to get the money they do because of some of the money you're seeing going around. However, if I was a GM or a coach and I'm logistically thinking about this, I understand where the teams are coming from in a way. Please hear me out before jumping down my throat. Again, I do think based on the skill that they have, what they bring to the table, what they produce, the jerseys and the tickets they sell, they should get paid. But for winning strategy, is it the smart decision? I'm not 100% sure. Hear me out on this one. Why I say winning strategy. Here are the past running back champion leading rushers. Sorry, the past Super Bowl champion leading rushers. We have Isaiah Pacheco from the Kansas City Chiefs last year, earned 725k. I'm just going to go down a list of the past 10 or 11. 2022 had Cam Makers making 1.1 million for the Rams. 21 had Leonard Fournette making 2 million for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 2020 Damian Williams making 1 million for the Kansas City Chiefs. 2019 Sony Michelle making 480k for the New England Patriots. 2017, LeGarrette Blunt making 900k for the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> 2017, LeGarrette Blunt again making 760k for the New England Patriots. 
2016, they had C.J. Anderson making 585k for the Denver Broncos, the Peyton Manning Denver Broncos. Peyton Manning's one of my favorite players. 2015, LeGarrette Blunt again, 730k, still on the Patriots. 2014, had Percy Harvin, 2.5 mil with the Seattle Seahawks. And 2013, had Ray Rice with 2 million for the Baltimore Ravens. So you look at that right there, Percy Harvin making the most at $2.5 million. Now, I know this isn't the biggest snapshot. There are a lot of other things going into it. But I look at it right there and I say, okay, the past 11 teams that have won a Super Bowl haven't really spent a crazy amount of money on the leading rusher of their team. So that's a big case right there. Is it overly worth it to tie up a lot of your money in that star player? I'm not 100% sure. Now, I know there are some really, really crazy salaries around the league that kind of make my arguments look silly because when I compare them, I, I don't have a valid case. Christian Kirk making $12 million a year for the Jaguars. Corey Davis making $12.5 million a year for the Jets. Cortland Sutton making $18 million a year for the Denver Broncos. I mean, I don't have an argument against those. Like, I, I'm on the running back side when I'm comparing it to there. Again, I need to look at the whole picture, which is why I bring up some of the stats of the past running backs and how they got paid. But those wide receivers making that amount of money is ridiculous. But should I pay Joe because I'm paying Adam? I don't know. It's one of the ones where I'm paying you on what I think it's worth. Again, it's tricky to say. I understand when you're comparing to other positions and you're saying, well, if he can get that much money, he's only producing that. I'm producing a crap ton more. People like Saquon Barkley. The amount of production that he brings. He is that New York Giants offense. And he's about to make less than Corey Davis. I do th understand the silliness behind what I'm saying there. Saquon Barkley's skill deserves to be paid. But why tie up that amount of money in a running back when you need to build around them? So, not to say Saquon Barkley's and the Josh Jacobs and the Derrick Henry's don't deserve their money. I fully get it. But... Another reason why I personally wouldn't pay for a top running back, not to say they don't deserve it, but I personally would choose choose to not go with Derrick Henry or the Saquon Barkleys, is personally I believe the running back has the biggest pool and the most talent position in the league. There's a lot of free agents that used to be starting running backs, a lot of free agents that can be productive players on a team. I also think... In the way that the modern NFL plays, it is one of the better or the, the best tandem-prone positions, if that makes sense. The one where you can do two or three people to do the job of one person. That's where I think the running back comes in the best. A lot of other positions on the offensive side, you can't really say that. Your quarterback, there's not that many great ones out there. you got to stick with who you got. You're not really going to do a tandem there. The wide receiver room does change around a little bit. I'll give you that. But you still have your one or two guys that you're going to trust. I throw it up there. He's going to make that catch. Enough said. The running back room. Yes, it's nice to be able to stick the ball in Derrick Henry's hand and get the five yards every time. That's productive. But with the way the NFL plays, is that a winning strategy? I don't know. So do you tie up all the money into the Derrick Henry if it's just going to get you into the playoffs to get knocked out in the AFC Championship to Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes throwing all over you. So that's where I'm kind of thinking, I don't know if running backs should get paid. Okay, I shouldn't say that. Running backs should get paid. If they have the talent, you should get paid. Would I pay them? 
No, because I would build my team a different way if I was a GM or a coach or a franchise owner. Also, another thing to think of is the way that the NFL is changing. It's definitely a passing league now. You can see it with the Pat Mahomes, the Josh Allens, they're chucking 4,500, 5,000 yards. They're, they're really running up the score. But another thing is quarterbacks can rush a lot. I shouldn't say freely or a lot more, but there's a lot more athletic people playing that quarterback position that are bringing the rushes. Last year, there were five quarterbacks with 700 or more rushing yards. Five. Put that into perspective. In 2021, there was three. In 2020, there was two. In 2019, there was one. In 2018, there was none. Now, a few years before that, you had Cam Newton. So in 2017, I think he got above the 700-yard mark, but then he fell back below. In 2014, Russell Wilson went above. He was a good scrambler early on, but then he fell back below. Where I'm getting with this is... Because the quarterback is a lot more athletic and can run, it's producing a lot more options. It's producing a lot more of those, those run-pass options, which, which mean you don't necessarily need that amazing running back. Again, being a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan, if you heard that truck drive by, I am so sorry. Again, working on my editing skills. If I can get that out, then disregard what I've just said. <laughs> but back to it. The Philadelphia Eagles last year, Miles Sanders was a great running back, but had injury positions. Jalen Hurts was so dynamic, they made Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott look like pretty darn good running backs in the NFL. I don't want to take anything away from them, but how many of you listening have heard of Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott? That's one of my points. You can get a really good high-powered offense with just that. Another thing that's somewhat changing is coaches are getting a lot more Interesting with their plays book, thanks to the Kyle Shanahan's and the Andy Reid's, in the sense of wide receivers are becoming involved in the run game. And if I have a dynamic person that knows how to run with the ball and catch, I'm going to use them. What I'm saying with things like that is, we all saw the Debo, I shouldn't say we all, the Debo breakout that happened two years ago in San Francisco. He's a wide receiver that was used as a running back. Now, they have Christian McCaffrey now, who's a great do-it-all running back. But Debo Samuel coming to San Francisco then was a huge move that took a lot of weight off the rest of their running backs. And they didn't need to pay a crazy running back when you could just give the ball to Debo Samuel. Now, not everyone's a great running back out of the backfield. Another thing that I think has changed a little bit in the NFL is there's a lot more screens. A lot more of those short dump offs. Get the ball to the playmaker. Let him do his thing. Get him behind a couple of blockers. Because of all of this, the running back position, not to say it's become less important, but they have found other ways to produce rushing yards, other ways to trick the offense in that I don't need to pay Derrick Henry $20 million. He deserves the money, but I can save my money for a talented running back, a great offensive line, and some key role player wide receivers, and I can get the job done with an Isaiah Pacheco and a Clyde Edwards-Hilaire who aren't making that much money. So do I think they deserve to get paid? Should they get paid based on their talent? Yes, that's my answer. Would I pay them if I was a GM? No, I would build my team in a different way. I would want them to get the money they deserve, which I know can be seen as hypocritical. I want them to get the money, but I wouldn't give them the money. But they're, they're worth the money. They've got the skill. I just think save the money to build your team better. I think that the winning team in today's NFL doesn't rely on that $20 million running back. 
Now, who's to say that's not going to change in the next three to four years? Saquon Barkley's doing great things. Josh Jacobs doing great things. Derek Henry, like I've mentioned a couple of times. But as of right now, is it a winning strategy? I'm not 100% sure. So there you have it. There's my answer. And that's what's going to lead us into our next break. And here we are with the last segment of the day, the Formula One race recap, where we got to welcome back one of my favorites, Danny Ricardo. This weekend brought us to the Hungaro Ring in Hungary, where Max Verstappen, what do you know, he won again. <laughs> all, all things aside, great job Verstappen. Uh, second, Lando Norris. Third, Checo. There's your podium, but Lewis Hamilton was not far behind Checo in fourth place. But again, podium, Verstappen, Lando, and Checo. Let's back it up a little bit and figure out how we get here. So P1 actually saw Checo crash on turn five. I don't know, was it a bit of pressure from Danny Ricardo signing with Alpha Tauri? People think he's coming after that seat. Max Verstappen said he, he never wanted Ricardo to leave, so could we see Ricardo in that Red Bull seat in the future? Time will tell. Was that pressure causing Checo to crash, or was it just a mistake? He had an entire tire. <laughs> that's an entire tire. His, his full tire was on the grass. He slipped off, crashed into the wall. He was out for P1 and P2. Again, was it pressure? I don't know. Either way, wasn't that great. After that red flag, though, bit of rain started to fall down, causing a couple of people to stay in. Danny Ricardo, who I was excited to watch, he didn't even put out a lap. Also with him were Max, Ocon, Lewis, Gasly, Checo, and Sainz. None of them put out laps because of the rain. Due to this, George Russell came in first, followed by the Aston Martins and the McLarens. So Piastri second, Stroll third, Lando fourth, Alonso fifth. Then we lead into P2 where the rain had stopped, stick tires got to come back on, everyone goes out there. While there was out there, a bunch of different people led the lap at different times. However, when the lower fuel started to get down, the softs came on, you really start to see some of the top guys break away. After P2, Leclerc had first, Lando had second, Gasly had third, with Ricardo having fourth and Yuki being, sorry, Ricardo in 14th with Yuki in fourth. That was the big one to watch. How close was that gap going to be? It was a 10-position gap. Then we head into P3. Checo's finally back after the P1 crash. They had some time to rework on the car. Again, everyone's working on their engine. I don't look too much into P3. But Lewis was first. Max was second. Checo was third. One of the things that was interesting this weekend is the tire allocation that the Formula 1 rules have set up. Normally, each car was able to bring 13 sets of tires to each re each weekend. Coming into Hungary, they were only able to bring 11 sets. So, basically, that's 160 less tires for an entire event. That's traveling. This is part of their going green system, doing their best to kind of save the planet. When you think about this, though, it is, I think, a good thing. Yes, it's going to lead to a couple of different decisions where I like, but... Where that causes is, if you look at it for a full season, 3,680 less tires have to be shipped around the world. So it, I think it's a smart decision. And again, it adds a couple of dynamic, strategical choices that the pit lanes have to make. But 
P1, P2, P3, again, don't look into it too much. People are just checking things out. Then we're heading into qualifying one where Zhou Guan Yu actually was the leader after Q1. Again, I don't dive too much into this. People are just trying to finish above that 16 line, but Zhou Guan Yu was first with a 1 minute 18.1. Right behind him was Max, Checo, Leclerc, and Piastri. Getting cut after P1 was Albon, Yuki, George Russell, Magnussen, and Logan Sargent. There was only 1.1 seconds separating first place and last place. But again, those were the five people that got cut with George Russell being the biggest surprise factor out of all of them. He just never really got the grip on his tires. Couldn't produce that solid time. Qualifying two. Again, not looking too much into the tops, but Lando was first. Lewis Hamilton was second. Max Verstappen was third. Alonso was 10th. At a 17.7, with Lando Norris being first at a 17.3. So you look at that, there's only a 0.4 separation between those. But those were kind of who finished in the tops there. Finally, Q3 is the one that matters. So who's going to be on the grid? Lewis Hamilton finally got a pole. First time since 2021. Right behind him, one of his bigger rivals, Max Verstappen in the Red Bull. And third place, Lando Norris on... McLaren and finishing that second row, his teammate Oscar Piastri, also from McLaren. Zhou Guan Yu was a surprise. He finished up there in fifth for the qualifying. But yeah, Checo finishing eighth and Russell finishing 18th were, I think, the biggest surprises out of the qualifier with Lewis Hamilton getting his pole. And now let's get into the race. One of the things I hate about some of the time differences is I was up at six o'clock in the morning, but I was led to action right away. Max Verstappen took a huge jump right off the line, takes a lead going into turn one. Hamilton starts to fight it. He's fighting with Lando Norris, trying to see who's going to take that second place. They run a little bit wide, which actually caused one of the more exciting moves. Oscar Piastri came from fourth, souped right on into second place, putting Lando Norris, I think, at third place after turn two, and Hamilton down to fourth after starting on pole. Max Verstappen... Then had the lead, never gave it up. One of the big decisions that people were thinking is if Hamilton doesn't fight that, doesn't try and keep that, he just unfortunately lets Max Verstappen concede, does Lewis Hamilton keep second place away from the McLarens? I don't know. At the end of the day, if I'm a fan, I want my driver going for it. I don't ever really want to concede, especially on turn one. I would have been happy as a McLaren fan if Lando did the same thing and went from pole to fourth because it shows he's at least trying. I know it's silly to say Max Verstappen is going to win regardless whether he takes you on turn one or he takes you 12 laps from then. He's going to take you, but I want to see my driver going for it. So that was a huge battle right away, right off the start. Led into, again, Max at first, Piastri at second, Lando at third, Lewis Hamilton at fourth. Also, big exciting ones on that first turn. Zhou Guan Yu crashed in behind Danny Ricardo, who then crashed into the two Alpines. Alpines hit each other, knocked the Alpines out of the race. Bit of chaos here happened on turn one, but that's why we love watching lap one of those Formula One races. Alex Albon was the first to pit on lap nine. He went on to, I believe it was Hards. And then Carlos Sainz was one of the first big racers to pit. He pitted on lap 16 because he wanted to try and keep Checo behind him the whole way. 
Lap 17 was where Lewis Hamilton pitted. So again, he's one of those top four racers. When he pits, he's fighting with McLarens in both Lando and Piastri. McLaren sees this and sends Lando in on lap 18. Right away after Lando goes in on lap 18, Piastri goes in on lap 19. Key one here, Lando has that lap earlier to get those tires warm. And as he's heading up into turn one, as Piastri is coming, coming out of the pit lane, Lando Norris has those warm tires, takes second place. Great attack coming in that first turn because he has those warmer tires. But then Verstappen just stretched the lead further and further. Some other exciting things. Perez and Russell were the last to stop in. I think that that was a key decision they made. They knew that they had a lot to make up, so they wanted to take the jumps when they could. And they put on the hards and wanted to stay out as long as they could. Perez was a quick out of his pit, so he took signs on turn one. Then he took Russell's on turn two, went up into fifth place, which was crazy. Hamilton and... Hamilton was in front of him with the two McLarens and Max Verstappen leading out the group at that point. Max, then in the middle of the race, really stretched out about a 10-second lead. Lando was also getting his lap, uh, his gap a bit bigger as well. Now coming into lap 43 is where Piastro and Checo both pitted. Checo had a 1.9-second pit. Sorry, let me rephrase. Checo was Sergio Perez, for those that aren't that crazy into Formula 1. Had a 1.9 second pit. That's unheard of. So that right away gets him out of the pits. He's already in competitive place. Piastri doesn't really stand a chance behind that Red Bull. Lap 45, Lando stays in third place. But Checo takes his teammate Piastri on lap 47. Now coming into lap 50, we've got about 20 laps left in the race, is where Hamilton pits and he comes out fifth on his exit. On lap 52, Max's pits, sorry, Max is the last to pit on the race, and he's got those fresh tires. He takes fastest lap, gets the 26 points. On lap 57 is where Lewis takes Piastri, jumps up into fifth place, and then the lap cars started creating a bit of traffic. Checo got close behind Lando because of this, but then they got a couple of cars in between them, and Lando started to get away. Then he kept away with about eight laps left, grew the lead back. However, then, Lewis started catching Checo. Didn't quite get there, though. Nothing else really happened towards the race, so that was your three. Max Verstappen finished in first. Lando Norris finished second, 33 seconds behind him. Checo finished third, four seconds behind Lando. And Lewis Hamilton, again, was only two seconds behind that podium with Checo. Key points I took away from this weekend. Danny Ricardo finished 13th, and Yuki finished 15th. So... That's already a good sign. I mean, DeVries got cut because he couldn't keep up. Whether that cut was justified or not, I don't know. I really like DeVries. I think he got cut a bit early. I wanted to give him a bit more chance. It's not like AlphaTauri has the most competitive car. But either way, he wasn't keeping up with Yuki. But then again, Yuki's a great driver. Nonetheless, Danny Ricardo finished above Yuki, which is probably what AlphaTauri was looking for. Red Bull taking the, lead with Verst- taking the win with Verstappen is now a record 12 wins in a row. They actually haven't lost this year, and it's the record which breeds the 1988 McLaren team who won 11 in a row. And the other big key points is Checo and Russell. Checo went from 8th, got up into the podium. Russell started all the way down there in 18th, climbed his way up to 6th on a course that's actually very hard to overtake. So I thought that was a great performance. Where that puts the standings, 
Max, Checo, and Alonso are still your top three, with Red Bull, Mercedes, and Aston Martin being the top three constructors. But yeah, that's probably a bit too much detail, and I will refine those from Formula One weekends, but I made the notes, and I wanted to talk about them because I didn't want to waste my time. Um, and there you have it. That was the Formula One weekend. Can't say I've got much controversial there. I really just gave you the facts. I didn't really have too many opinions overly. That's where I want to go in the future with it, but there's my Formula One recap, and again, welcome back, Danny Ray. Well, that marks the end of another episode of Roped In. Thank you very much for listening. My plan is to drop these episodes once every once a week on Sundays. Again, I do want to get some guests on here. It's not only going to be just me, but for now, I'm still figuring it all out. Probably just going to be me again, episodes every Sunday. Let me know what you guys think about some of the things I've said, whether you agree, whether you disagree, whether you have something you want to talk about in the future. Let me know. But that's a wrap on today's episode. And as always, Hakuna Matata.